Philippians 4, 10 through 23. Listen as I read God's word. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The Rockefellers are known historically as a very wealthy family in the United States, have been, as you know, for many decades. John D. Rockefeller, many years ago, was asked the question, Mr. Rockefeller, what does it take to make a man content? Being a very wealthy man, he answered, a little more than he already has. Very interesting response. A little more than he already has. That's what he said it takes to make a man content from his perspective. You know, it's interesting. We do live in a culture where contentment is hard to come by. To be content is a challenge for every single one of us. If we're honest, it's hard for me to be content in my life at different times in different ways. I'm sure it's a challenge for you whatever those particulars are for your own life. We're constantly in this culture where we're told that we need more. We need to consume more. We need to have the latest technology. If you don't have the iPhone 4S, you got to get the iPhone 5. And if you don't have the, if you don't have the 5 or whatever is next, you've always got to have the latest and greatest, whatever it is. And if you don't, you kind of are told, well, you really need to try. You know, we're always told the messages daily, every single day and all day of these, uh, these types of challenges. We, we're told that we need to have a certain lifestyle. We need to live with a, a certain uh, affluence, and we need to have a certain house or a certain car or cars. We need to have 
um, things in our life, certain vacations and certain conveniences, and the list goes on and on. You know, if you just watch a 30-minute TV show, only 18 or so of those 30 minutes is actually the TV show. The other 12 minutes are commercials, are advertisements. Over a third of, if you watch TV for any amount of time, over a third of whatever you watch, if you watch it, just if you watch a show straight through, is continual advertisements and messages that are telling us these types of things. It's a constant challenge for us to, to truly grasp what it means to be content, to be satisfied not only in our relationship with God himself, but also to be satisfied with what his providence and what his sovereign gifts have brought us, where they have placed us, how they have placed us in this world. To truly be content and satisfied with everything God has given you to this point on this day, that is truly an act of God's Spirit to do that in us. But we must be willing. We must be willing to receive and to seek God's Spirit to bring us contentment by His grace. Being content is certainly something we must strive for. We must, in a sense, seek God for. Ask Him to bring our hearts to that, to that place. You know, it's interesting as I was coming to this passage and I was studying this week and preparing. I had a flashback. Um, I guess it was an okay flashback. Uh, this passage is the first passage I ever preached. When I was in Bible, I just realized it this week. When I was in Bible college, this particular passage on contentment, I was in preaching class with a bunch of other people. And I chose this passage. It just, at that time in my life, meant a lot to me. And so I chose I've never preached in my life. I'm going to stand up and try to preach or teach this passage in 20 minutes. That's right, just 20 minutes. And I stood up there, and I, I preached this message, and I sat back down, and it just so happened the next day we were concluding the class. It was towards, I, I was towards the end of the roster, and there was a class, uh, a vote on who was going to preach a sermon for the entire student body in chapel in two weeks. And I was thinking, you know, I've never preached. There was guys that had been preaching. And so, I got a call the next night from the professor that he wanted me to come and he wanted me to deliver the sermon because the student, the student class had actually chosen me to give the message on contentment. And so, with fear and trembling, I told him, I can't do that. <laughs> I said, I, it was hard enough to do it for about 30 or 40 people in my class. I cannot do this for the, um, for the entire student body of this Bible college. There's no way. And I was trying to be respectful of, of what had happened and what God had done. And, and I never forget on that, on that phone call, he said, well, Mike, I understand what you're struggling with. He goes, but let me say this to you. God never calls you to do something. He doesn't provide the means for you to do it. And I went, oh, great. And it was a very godly man saying this to me on the phone, my professor nonetheless, and he still had my grade outstanding. So uh, I said, yes, I'll do it somehow. And so I did. But it was on this passage. It was on this very passage on contentment. And so contentment we're going to look at, first of all, 
has a certain nature about it. Gospel contentment, as I've called it, particularly has a nature, what it really is. And Paul describes here what gospel, being contented with what and who Christ is in our lives and our relationship to him really looks like. First, as Paul writes in verses 11 and 12, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need to the Philippians, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it's, it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. The first characteristics of the nature of this type of content, of being contented in Christ is not based upon our circumstance. You see, you can't be content when you're constantly trying to hit a moving target. Your heart's trying to hit a moving target, which is our circumstances. They change moment by moment. Daily, your circumstances, my circumstances are changing It's a challenge for us each and every day to face whatever circumstances in God's providence he allows to come, but they're always changing. They're always moving. And so if our contentedness is based upon our circumstances and where we are at any given moment of any given day, then they will constantly be challenged. We will find it very difficult to be at rest, to be at peace, to be content with where God has us and what he has brought us. It's not based on circumstances. It can't be. Paul was probably defining contentment in some sense based upon even a third century B.C. philosophy known as Stoicism. In Stoicism, the essence of all other virtues was simply to be content. The essence of the virtuous life was to be soulishly satisfied. If you were, you were considered very wise in a Stoic's perspective. You know, in our culture, we say just the opposite than the Stoics who sought maybe to have less and to be content with wherever they were. In our culture today, to have less often is thought of as being less. When you have less today, well, then there must be something wrong. We went on the mountain at Cherokee to Joanna's home. We never went in her home. She wasn't there. But had she even been there, we probably would not have gone in her home. I don't know Joanna. I don't know how she feels. But from the outside, that was a very difficult home to live in, physically, compared to everyone on the team and where we live and how we live daily. Sometimes we might feel embarrassed about how we might live or things in our life or what we don't have or how we don't seem to appear to others. And that's unfortunate because we don't need to ever be ashamed of what God has provided for us in our life. Whatever God has provided for you, that's one of the beauties of the church is it should be a place where no matter what economic background you come from, whatever socio-status position or place in this world, God has brought you 
and provided for you because it is from God's hand to you that you can be with brothers and sisters and it just does not matter. It doesn't matter how much or how little anyone has as we shoulder to shoulder worship Christ each and every week, every day. We spend time breaking bread together in each other's homes. We go and visit one another. I've spoken with people who would not want to have people from their church in their home because they would feel embarrassed. Can you imagine how disappointing that is? How discouraging that is, that you couldn't even have a brother or sister to your home because you would feel like it's just not good enough. Oh, that we would never have that thought, that feeling. We would, we would be glad to share our homes. We'd be glad to share our lives with one another. And we would be able to go and lovingly spend time and fellowship with each other wherever we go in each other's homes. You know, Paul was in a Roman prison when he wrote these words. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. He's in prison. He's in chains. How many times have we said that throughout this letter? But yet he's saying, I am content with what I have been given. Paul was making a clear distinction here about the nature of contentment between quantity and quality of living in God's providence. The difference, distinction between quantity, as he says, I know what it means to live in plenty or to live in need, to have much or to have little. He's making the distinction. There, there are, I've lived in both. Right now, I'm a little bit in need probably. I'm a little bit less. I'm in prison. I'm in chains. I'm in a little less right now. But I've lived with great abundance. And he describes he's been in both situations in his life. Many of you have been in both situations in your life. You've lived with little, and then you've lived with much, and probably in between. Paul's making a distinction between the much or the little or, or any area of quantity and the quality of his life in Christ, the quality of, of living in this world despite the circumstance of little or much. Paul's making a distinction of how God's provision in his life, whether quantity of much or little, doesn't matter because it's what God wants. It's what he's provided. So often our contentment rests solely, or greatly at least, on what we have or don't have. And not before you go too far in thinking or concluding what I just said, not just physical material things am I only speaking of. Sometimes we're discontented because of a relationship or relationships we don't have that we desire. Or whether issues of our life of family, of children, of the type of parents maybe we desire or that we desire or an upbringing that we look back and we continually live with regret because we feel, we feel like we were wanting and we lacked so much 
in the mother or the father or the situation that God, in his sovereign love, allowed for us to receive. It's not just a matter of a big house or a big car. It's so much more that we can be discontented about. It goes so much greater than that. And so Paul's saying, whatever the circumstance, whatever circumstances I've had or I have, or that I will have, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. 1 Timothy 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Being satisfied, being content with the character of maturing in godliness and in growth and grace is a powerful thing for a believer. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be packing the minivan. And I have another opportunity to be the type of husband and father that I so often fail at this one task, packing the car. With four women and a dog in a crate to fit everybody for a multi-week vacation and do it without losing my mind <laughs> is a challenge for me. We all, you know, you know, Superman had kryptonite, okay? It's packing for a trip for me. It just gets me every time. It's just, it's the thorn in my flesh. It is the arrow dagger that takes me out almost every time. It's such a huge challenge for me. I don't know why, but it just is. I request all the luggage to be down at a certain time so I can get it packed. Because you have to have the heavy stuff on the bottom, you know. And the, Yeah, I see, some, I see some guys going, you got it, Mike. You know exactly what you're doing. You're the man. Go do it. And I don't. I'm not the man. I'm a woman with all these women in my house. And I constantly wait for all these. See, I can say all these things because they're not here today. <laughs> Actually, my girls are finishing up at a camp today, and my wife had to go over there. They're in a worship service together at Camp Westminster. But anyway, that's why they're not here. But because they're not here, I can speak freely today. So, you see, it's just really hard. And, and what happens is inevitably by 20 minutes into the process, I am, you know, not in a good place. <laughs> Veins are kind of bulging, and, you know, my, I'm sure my blood pressure is up, and just trying to get everything where it needs to be. So maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you haven't, much more spiritual than me, um, but I do, I, I struggle with that. And yet, I, I'm praying and hoping that even as this process begins this afternoon and tonight and then into tomorrow morning and we're on the road, that I will be content with whatever happens in that situation. I won't be impatient, I'll be resting and just waiting and just going through it rather than the way that I always have often treated those situations. There's something for you just like for me. I mean, packing is not my only problem. You probably have similar things. And every time they come up, because they come up regularly in your life, how do you respond? Are you anticipating whatever it's going to be and then looking to Christ and being satisfied, being content with him? It can't be, you see, my peace in Christ cannot be based upon whether or not things are packed the way they need to be packed. It can't be that way. Because 
What's the result? The result is an improper breakdown of a relationship between myself and four other people in my family. And that's not good. I mean, even at this point, I know when my girls are grown, they're out of the house, they're going to look back and say, you know, I remember when dad used to pack the van on vacations. I know that's what they're going to say, but maybe I could actually change it a little bit. Maybe they would say, but when I was 14, you know, he, he changed. It was July 1st. 2013, and he came out packing the van like he's never packed it before. You know, maybe that could happen. It truly can. We can change. We really can. We, uh, is our motto real? Changed hearts, changed lives. Can my life really change tomorrow morning? Don't call. <laughs> Don't call. But I hope it can and believe it can. The nature is not just based on circumstances. The nature of the contentment that God gives us flows directly out of our relationship with Jesus. Verse 13, Paul says, I can do all this, all this he's just said, I can do it all through him who gives me strength. You know, often Christians will use this verse when they have a tremendous mountain to climb in their life or an obstacle to overcome. I know athletes use this verse all the time. I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. I, did, I used it in my background in those, in those days. But if you really study this verse in its context, what Paul is saying, it says that we can face not only life's mountains and obstacles, but this verse, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Paul is saying that whatever the outcome, we can be confident and contented in whatever God provides. In other words, what can you do with the strength that God gives? You can be content. See, God gives the strength to be content in him. That's what Paul's saying. I can do all this. I mean, I can live in want or plenty, whatever the circumstances. I can do all this. I can be content in my life. Really be content and satisfied. Because his strength is given to me. Christ gives me his strength. Second Peter 1, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And if this is true, we believe this verse is true, God's word is truth, then that means God will never require anything of you that he will not provide. Sounds like my preaching professor in Bible college. God will never require something of you in your walk with him that he will not provide the resources that you really need, whatever that is. And that's challenging to really believe that and to trust that. It's very challenging, but it's true. God has said it, and it is absolutely true. Why do we call gospel content? Why do we call contentment gospel contentment? I call this gospel contentment because there is no other really absolute kind of contentment than being content with what and who Jesus is in our life. You can't be satisfied and content in anything else if you first are not at rest and content in him, with him, unto him. 
You just can't. And some of you here this morning, you might not know Christ even. You may never have yet in your life made a decision to be content in Christ alone. Content in the Son of God alone. I have to tell you something. You will never be content in anything else. You will seek to be content in all types of things and all types of ways and circumstances, but you will never find that absolute contentment. It's just not possible. But in Christ, you can. In that relationship, you will find absolute, inexplainable contentment and satisfaction. God promises that kind of contentment. So it flows directly at our relationship with Jesus. So it begs the question, how is your relationship with Jesus going? Oftentimes, you will be able to connect. How is your walk with Jesus going? How are you walking with him daily, regularly? How are you spending time with him? And if the answers to those questions find great want, then you might find that you have been really struggling in your life to be content in lots of other things. Because usually when we're not in touch and connected with Jesus regularly, we're trying and we're taking those energies and time and effort and we're trying to place them elsewhere to be satisfied in other things. That's how it seems, usually works. We try to switch and it doesn't work. <clears throat> the, the third nature of gospel contentment is that it is learned. It's learned as we daily follow Christ. It's learned. It's not the day you come to know Christ in your life, then the magic wand taps you on the head and you are content for life. You never struggle with wanting anything again. You're satisfied with anything and everything, whatever circumstance comes. It's done. That'd be nice, but that's not how it works. Paul himself says it's a process. I've learned to be content. Verse 11, I have learned to be content content, whatever the circumstance. Verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Twice he highlights the truth that he's learned what it means to be content. You know, contentment comes through gaining God's wisdom and God's perspectives, his truth from his word and from his spirit. For example, some things I've learned I'm sure you have as well. We learn not to allow people, places, and things to become idols for our hearts when we learn to be content. We learn not to let people, places, or things become idols of the heart because they can quickly become that and easily become that. Money, our job, our career, relationships, a car, a, a toy, any material possession, those, all those things and many more, they can become idols of our heart that we place value and worship in those things rather than in the one who has redeemed us. Ecclesiastes, a wonderful book to read to challenge our thinking regarding this in chapter 6 says this, I have seen, the author says, 
I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Wow. That's wisdom. You can have a lot of stuff and absolutely enjoy none of it because it doesn't, it doesn't touch your soul. Stuff doesn't touch your soul. It doesn't do anything for your soul. Really? Does it? Oh, temporarily maybe. You might find happiness or some level of temporary satisfaction in these things, but the deepest part of you, it just doesn't. If it were so, then why are the most wealthiest, the most affluent people in the world empty inside, absolutely empty, and searching, searching? Why are we as one of the wealthiest nations in the world, as a culture, somewhat soulless, even though we have everything? Even in this economy, we have everything, and yet we're empty inside. It's true what Ecclesiastes says. You know, it's always interesting to look at the journey of one's stuff. I don't mean necessarily baggage, but I mean literally our stuff. When I left for college, I put everything in the back of a pickup truck that I owned in my life and went to college. And pretty much did that until I graduated, and then I went and took a first job in a church and went to Florida, and everything was pretty much in the back of a very small U-Haul truck to a one-bedroom apartment. Lived there for many years, completely satisfied with that, and then it, take, it was time after we got married, and we accumulated a little bit more because there was two people, not one. Then we moved to a two-bedroom apartment, and it went from one small U-Haul, somehow now we had a very big, the biggest you can get U-Haul to go from one to a two-bedroom. And then from there to our first home, and now it took more than one truck to get your stuff from this place to that. And the stuff just kept building. Where does it all come from? And it just, over the years, you accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. You know, somehow our stuff gives birth to more stuff. And you don't even know it. It's like you put it in a closet and you open it up and, wow, it multiplied. It just happens that way. You know, we all have so much. We really do. I mean, how many of you have clothes you haven't worn in years sitting there and you think, I'm going to get down to that size again. I'm going to wear that. Or you think about certain things. My mom said to me, now, you know, when I die, I want you to get this dresser, and I want you to, and now you can never sell this dresser. It's in the family since I was, you know, and I looked at her, and I was probably not a respectful son, but I said, I don't want it. And I said, I don't want anything with any, with any strings attached to it because it doesn't matter to me. I appreciate it's been in the family for all those years, but don't give me anything that you're going to have expectations that I'm going to, what I have to do with it. And she goes, well, okay. Sometimes we get so tied to things 
because they've been in the family for generations. I respect that. I value. I've got a pocket knife from my grandfather that you're going to have to kill me to take it from me. But yet, you know, where is our heart? Where is our heart? You know, we learn the difference between a want and a need. Verse 19, he says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory. So often we think what we want is really what we need, and it's just not. You know, there's a trend now in young Hollywood celebs, it seems, to avoid excess, to avoid all excess. And it can range from being motivated by a diet fad to some Zen philosophy or all kinds of things. But it really doesn't, but, but when you think about those things, it presents and begs the question, well, should I, as a believer, a follower of Christ, avoid excess in my life then? I mean, they're avoiding it for all kinds of other reasons. But what should I do? What does Christ call me to do regarding that in my life and why? A few years ago, we as a congregation uh, read a book called The Treasure Principle. It's based on Matthew 6, 19 through 21. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, contentment is a heart issue. And where is your heart? Wherever it is, that's where your treasure is as well. Jesus is reminding us here in Matthew 6 that earthly investments into the work of the gospel are actually an advanced investment for heavenly treasures. You see, when we invest in the work of the gospel in this life, it is an advancement on heavenly treasures that await. This is what Paul is now reminding us when he talks about the blessings of gospel contentment. We've, we've just now looked at the nature, but in short, what are the blessings? A couple of thoughts, he says, and I say them briefly. First, the blessing that we often miss when we are content is that we have the ability to invest generously in the work of the gospel. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Again, in verse 18, I've received full payment and more than enough I'm amply supplied now that I've received your gifts that Epaphroditus brought. What's he saying to the Philippians, his brothers and sisters? You have invested in the work of the gospel. You understand what it means to be content in your own life. And as you have been content, you have been given the ability above your satisfaction to also then invest in the work of the gospel. You see, when you're content in your life and you're not trying to accumulate and consume more, then when God does bring the increase, and he often does, then you can invest in God's kingdom. When we are wise stewards of God's resources that he's entrusted to us, we can generously invest into his gospel work. You know, like many of you, Charlotte and I, all of our life have lived on a fixed income. Fixed income. 
There have never been things like incentives or corporate dividends or stocks, options, or bonuses as a pastor. Well, not materially, but certainly spiritually there are all those things. But whether we've been in situations of raising support or whether we're on salary in a ministry opportunity, our income was always fixed. So early on in our marriage and in our ministry together, we had to make a decision. Were we going to wisely manage our personal finances so that God would be glorified? Or, or were we going to place ourselves and even Christ's name at risk for the sake of personal affluence and gain? Hopefully we continue to follow what God has called us to in making that decision to follow him. I had to ask myself the question, was I going to be content to use my resources for God's purposes or mine? And I continually have to ask myself that question. I invite you to ask yourself the same question. And though not perfectly, as we have chosen to follow God's purposes, we've been able to bless others and to be blessed as we have generously invested time, talents, and treasures in the work of the gospel for these many years. And when we are content with our circumstance and we invest in the work of the gospel generously, there is great blessing that happens. Even last night, Charlotte and I talked before we went to bed about how we're going to respond to what our elders talked to us last Sunday about. How are we going to respond this summer, this fall? And we talked about that and how we need to be in prayer and considering what actions we need to personally take to our own personal finances. We all are in this journey and this call together. And the last great blessing we have that Paul reminds us in verses 18 and 20 is the opportunity for God to be pleased and for God to be glorified. And that can only be our greatest motivation, that God is glorified. And he is pleased as we are content in him. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more than enough. I'm amply supplied. You see, Paul was in abundance. He was in prison. And yet he says, I am amply supplied. I feel like I am the richest man on earth. And that's what's amazing. When we are truly seeking the Lord and we are content in him, and we're not basing it on circumstance, then we feel like Paul did in prison, just full, amply, fully supplied in all that God has done and given us. And he's glorified and pleased. Verse 20, <clears throat> he says, or it's going to be verse 18, the latter part, these gifts that you sent, Paul says, they are fragrant offering. They are an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. You see, the very gifts that the Philippians offered, they were a pleasing aroma to the Father, even though they may not have seen the full extent of their gifts and what they did. They were pleasing to God. They were an offering that was acceptable and pleasing to their Father. You know, God is glorified when we honor him with hearts that are content. So, one of the greatest ways that we can glorify God 
And we all desire, I hope and pray, to glorify God. One of the greatest ways we glorify God is when we are absolutely resting, satisfied and content in Him and what He has given us.